Hello and welcome to WXVU Villanova's new series, So You Have a Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Derry, and today I have the privilege to be joined by Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House. Matt, how are you today? Good. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for being here. Uh, I just want to take a quick moment to uh, congratulate you on getting married recently. I uh, hope married life is going well for you. Thank you very much. It is. Good to hear. Good to hear. So I mentioned that you are one of the hosts of Chapo Trap House. Could you give us a quick rundown of all the podcasts and media projects that you've been part of and a brief description for each? Uh, well, the main one is uh, Chapo Trap House, which is a uh, political comedy podcast that I've co-hosted with uh, Felix Biederman and uh, Will Menneker and uh, Amber Frost at times, and, uh, Virgil Texas at times uh, for the past six years. Uh, I've also done a spinoff show called Hell of Presidents with our producer, Chris Wade, about American uh, hit political history. And I'm uh, preparing another one with him that's going to be uh, available uh, as sort of an adjunct of Chapo about uh, early modern Europe uh, called Hell on Earth that's going to be available in January. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to get right into it. So this first section is about mostly Chapo Trap House. So what were you personally doing immediately before the start of Chapo? Uh on the internet. I mean, that was kind of me. I, I, I don't, I have nothing uh, to recommend me as a producer of anything uh, in terms of ex life experience uh, or uh, anything like that. Uh, just sort of a internet blob. Nice. Uh, on Twitter a lot, I, I would assume. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so what inspired you Will Menneker and Felix Biederman to start Chapo all the way back in 2016. And how did you come up with the name? Oh, uh, that was Will's idea. And he just said it sort of as a joke at the end of our first broadcast that was a, a test run. We, we just recorded ourselves on a Google Hangout. Uh, we didn't know how to edit anything. We just knew that if we put a Google Hangout on YouTube, you can rip the audio from that. And we just directly sent that out there just really to see if people thought it was good People thought it was interesting uh, and we got a really strong response. So we kept doing it. The name was not something that any of us had really thought of. Will threw it out there at the end as sort of a joke because he is into hip hop. Hmm. And uh, then, you know, once it kind of immediately got a response and we followed up and did some more, it, it was stuck. And uh, we, we, we haven't really, we haven't had, you know, it's been at times embarrassing. And I know a lot of people, sometimes get offended by it because it's appropriative. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, we, part of the reason the show I think worked is that none of us really were thinking too hardly about what we were doing. Uh, and so it was able to have sort of an uh, authentic and fresh feeling for people. And that was part of it. Yeah. I definitely think a name like Chapo Trap House is better than uh, any generic politics show name you could come up with. Yeah, yeah, like the like the politics boys with a Z or something. It would not have been good if we'd had to sit down and try to think of one. Yeah. So you have at various times sworn off predicting things uh, for the future. But of the predictions that you made in the first year of the show in 2016, which did you get the most and least correct? I don't remember really us predicting much. We were mostly just kind of yelling about the political scene and and the lack of any reflection of our view on what was happening in any of the media that we were being confronted with including stuff that was you know supposed to be uh outside of the mainstream and so we were really focused on just sort of providing some sort of counterpoint to that uh we didn't really get into the prediction game until later and that was not really ever my strong suit i don't, I don't think that i I, I mostly get everything wrong <laughs> when I try to predict specific uh, outcomes of events. I'm, I feel more confident in my grasp on like, like broader contours where things are going, maybe in a general direction. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think there's just too much, too much accumulated randomness and, and things moving at too high of a speed for there to be a lot to gain from predicting specific outcomes anymore. Mm -hmm. 
So on that note about the general contours, so what are the political and cultural contours and currents that you think the show has done the best job of exploring and has the focus of these uh, the show changed at all over the years? I mean, at first it emerged, the show started as, as uh, a part of the greater phenomenon of the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016, which gave a lot of people who had been really uh, alienated by, from the Democratic Party and the Obama administration over the previous eight years uh, a, uh, and who wanted some sort of change of direction, uh, a hope and an, uh, uh, that, that they were not alone and that there were other people uh, who felt the same way and enough of them to maybe push politics in a different direction. And I think that the first four years of the show from the 2016 election to the 2020 election uh, were us articulating this alternative path uh, for the Democratic Party uh, that could be taken if, if enough people uh, uh, signed up and, and sort of did the work of, of uh, overcoming the institutional barriers uh, to that more left-wing, traditionally uh, class-based approach to politics that the Democratic Party had extinguished over the previous 40 years. Uh, and then, you know, after the 2020 election, we all had to sort of come to the realization that our understanding of where the center of gravity of American politics was and specifically who was a self-conscious political actor in America and the things that make motivate people to become self-conscious political actors in this country are uh, just antithetical to conventional political organ uh, electoral political organizing at the national level. Uh, and so the since then the, the the Brandon years has really been us trying to uh, re uh, focus ourselves uh, along uh, commentary lines, uh, trying to make you know points about what's going on, trying to more than anything be entertaining and funny about you know, news of the week and about general American life without uh, the underlying premise that there is another track to follow that we are a part of because uh, after the failure of the Bernie campaign, there was this broad uh, crisis among people who had supported it about what to do next. And the, um, the one thing that I noticed personally is that the uh, instinct to sort of deny the evidence of the senses and, and double down or on uh pressuring the Democrats or shifting to try to imagine that there's some sort of populist uh, basis within the Republican Party uh, are, are pretty fruitless. Uh, and we wanted to sort of save ourselves from the, the spiraling, basically, uh, out of uh, connection with reality. So um, I kind of feel that the purpose of the show now is to keep myself and our listeners sort of grounded in uh, uh, the reality of our lives. Uh, and to resist the the siren call of political uh, uh, fantasies that are are very very uh, um, seductive, considering how you know out of control and uh, and degrading everything feels. Yeah, that that note about people that have turned to the Republicans is very interesting. It, there, it seems to me that there's multiple factions of ostensibly left wing people that are fighting over the most interesting way to vote Republican yeah. in 2024, which seems to be completely off the ball. I mean, it's honest. If you want to see your enemies suffer, and if you have decided that liberals are the reason that we are in the state we're in, and liberals are who have, who has denied, who have denied are the ones who denied us the possibility of any kind of class politics, uh, which in, in some senses is correct. Then uh, any outcome that, uh, that, sees them come to grief, sees, sees them miserable, uh, is something that uh, at, a, at a libidinal level can be uh, 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 attractive. Uh, but beyond that, the idea that it, it can lead to a, a politics that is in any way uh, different in its structural outcomes than the one we have is, I think, the real uh, delusion. Yeah. 
So now moving on to the Hell of Presidents podcasts. So what inspired you and Chris Wade to make this podcast and why the presidents as sort of the entry point? Basically because uh, Chris had enjoyed and noted uh, that when we're together, you know, we're at a bar, we're hanging out, we're on tour in a hotel room or something. uh, I can get wound up on specific presidents and I'll just start talking about them. And he's, he just enjoyed those conversations and he thought that they could be the basis, like my specific weird hyper fixation on presidential ephemera and personalities could be something we could hang a greater uh, uh, narrative of American political history on top of. And, and that's what we, that's how, that's what we ended up trying to do. There were a number of permutations and uh, plans for it that kind of weren't able to come together. Uh, uh, the, the original idea was we were going to pick a few lesser known presidents to focus on, but it became a question of contextualizing uh, everything around them. Uh, and we ended up just deciding to go all through them in order. Uh, and excuse me, uh, that's, that, that that was sort of the, the uh, original inspiration for it was, hey, you know, wind Matt up and he'll he'll holler about Matt, Martin Van Buren for 20 minutes. That might be fun to listen to. So maybe picking up on Martin Van Buren, I know you think he is an underappreciated uh, president in our history. Um, are there maybe talking about him and any other uh, presidents or eras you think are underappreciated in American history? Uh, well, yeah, Van Buren is definitely one of them. He's he's one of the one of the one term losers, who, uh, and he's from before the Civil War era, which uh, that that period between the founders and the Civil War, when most of the, when the presidents are mo- most obscure. It's then in the Gilded Age when presidents are are the mediocre presidents, as they're referred to in that Simpsons uh, uh, songs number. But he was uh, probably the single most important individual uh, in building the second party system that uh, really has dominated American politics ever since the, the 1830s. Uh, the Whigs, of course, you know, went away uh, to be replaced by the Republicans, but, but the Democratic Party that uh, Van Buren built, the alliance that he built between uh, Northern uh, laborers uh, and Southern uh, uh, slave uh, owners, uh, is one of the most important like blocks of uh, political influence in this country and helped shape its uh, destiny more than almost anything. And, and so I think he, he deserves more recognition for that. Certainly Uh, other ones I would say who get kind of under uh, remembered or underappreciated Grover Cleveland is a a pretty important uh, character in uh, solidifying the uh, American state that emerges out of uh, reconstruction and the re- recurrent economic crises of the late 19th century uh, and helping to keep at bay a, uh, fun- a real populist challenge uh, to the two-party system with his uh, two non-consecutive terms. Um, and Truman, honestly, is wildly under appreciated considering how important uh, the period of time that he was president for was to the formation of the post-war American state, which then became the administrator of the post-war global uh, capitalist imperium that we're all now living uh, in. Uh, So yeah, I'd say those guys. Yeah. Truman's an interesting figure because he, is a was a machine democrat from the yes. pendergast machine. Yeah, Kansas the Kansas City pendergast machine yeah so last president to not go to co- did not uh finish college yeah so and that was a very close call given that uh Henry Wallace was the vice president before in the FDR's previous term and then the uh I guess it must have been the southern democrats and the the machine democrats got uh Truman in there right yeah, there was essentially a revolt from the machine Democrats and the Southern Democrats at the convention in 44, uh, when everyone sort of understood that FDR probably wouldn't finish his fourth ter- the fourth term he was running for, uh, that 
refused to renominate Henry Wallace, who was the representative of, of the left wing of the Democratic coalition that had just was winning World War II at that period, uh, that went from everybody from uh, the, prog- the uh, progressive academic types uh, to the, the uh, CIO backed, you know, uh, fellow travelers and that there was simply not enough. Uh, uh, the, there was not enough juice there. The, 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 the uh, party was the uh, center of gravity was, was too fixed in its urban machines and certainly in the solid South for a uh, meaningful confrontation to be uh, held there. And so the, the uh, they were, they had Truman foisted upon them. And then when FDR dies at the incredibly crucial moment that he does, it ensures that the, uh, the post-war state is going to uh, pursue confrontation with the Soviet Union rather than any sort of cooperative rebuilding, which is something that the Soviets were, uh, had great hopes for and which many in the uh, New Deal coalition and in the executive, the FDR's administration were hoping to at least attempt. Uh, and at Truman's uh, ascension, ascension uh, wiped that out as a possibility. So the broad coalition of the New Deal with the, the Dixiecrats, the Northern Machines, sort of urban liberals is totally alien to our current ideologically based parties. What presidents best exemplify that change? You mean from like the the, the coalitions to the ideology? I mean, the the, yeah. the, uh, the the big breakup occurs in the seventies because the uh, the economic engine and uh, the the of the Democratic Party, which was this uh, uh, relationship with big labor, uh, begins to break up because big labor itself is is essentially euthanized over the course of the seventies. Uh, by by the reaction to the uh, stagflation crisis and, and the energy crisis of that period, when when a globalized capitalism's contradictions start uh, breaking up the uh, post-war order that had sustained uh, that New Deal post- Great Society coalition, uh, and uh, but the 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 real year, the real pre- the real the presidential election that that really sees the, the uh, these fractures emerge uh, out of sort of latency and become completely dominant is uh, 2000. So I guess it, uh, you'd probably want to say George W. Bush more than anyone, because Reagan obviously comes in and makes great inroads with a lot of former Democratic voters uh, in the South and, and, and the white flight suburbs, the Reagan Democrats. Uh, and then, but you still don't have a real, uh, uh, that really doesn't hit like the levels of Congress until the 1994 uh, presidential election. And uh, Bill Clinton still wins West Virginia, both uh, of his elections handily. Uh, it was really the 2000 election where there was really no economic agenda at stake. I mean, it's hard to remember now but before 9-11 in the wake of 9-11 and everything, but the, two th- the joke of the 2000 election is, is that they were basically identical candidates uh, in that they had no real vision, uh, that neither of them had a uh, compelling uh, contrast with one another on any economic question. The, the, uh, the Clintonite synthesis of uh, of Reaganism was the hege- hegemonic vision of both parties. So it really did come down to personality and affect in a lot of ways. And those things end up after 2000 increasingly defining people's relationship to their uh, presidential preferences. Mm-hmm. So a common refrain during the whole of Hella Presidents was uh, it's free real estate and it's free real estate. estate. And the role that the frontier played in American history. So, how does the search for frontiers inform the current moment? Uh, it's it's well. You see the the ceaseless seeking of for frontiers in things like uh, the cryptocurrency and uh, and NFTs, metaverse, uh, and when you see how just impoverished those concepts are. 
and how uh, how few, relatively few people are able to even briefly entertain any real hope that they're going to be able to be enriched by them in any way, culturally or uh, economically. Uh, the legitimacy crisis that is now racking American political institutions really comes into focus because America's political institutions are validated by the continued uh, uh, exploration and, and settlement of frontiers and distribution of frontier uh, surpluses, uh, not democratically, but uh, in, in some sense, uh, uh, broadly. Uh, and th- that has been replaced by this uh, cannibalistic end stage capitalism uh, in which uh, the consumer bonanza uh, at the bottom, or, or the, uh, the middle, rather, the, in the middle, the, the precarious middle uh, of American uh, population has been uh, replaced by a growing, gnawing precarity and, and a sense that there will be less in the future, not just for you, but certainly for your children. Uh, and, and as a result of that, the assumed legitimacy of political institutions uh, and political processes. Uh, is now coming into significant question. Uh, and no one at any level of power in any of these institutions is capable of addressing it because for them, uh, they all still work. For them, they are all still as legitimate as they have ever been. And they can only respond with sort of bafflement and an attempt to batter people back into faith in the system that can no longer be sustained because the frontier can no longer be uh, imaginatively explored. The only uh, people left who can get any broad center of the population to uh, go along with their frontier fantasies are individual uh, uh, heroic billionaires like Elon Musk. Uh, but you know those those visions are pure fraud and 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 uh, hucksterism, which you know has always been an engine of American political uh, or American political and economic. Uh, progress. The, the the we say that America is 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 built on free real estate, but specifically real estate scams. Uh, it is it's getting people to buy. Uh, it's uh, giving people an idea that they will have prof, uh, total uh, that their wealth will be unlimited. That 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 they can gain and their children can gain sort of exponentially through uh, the speculation on land, but. The people who actually make money at every level of America's uh, settlement are those who are selling the land to the people who are going to then find just how hard it is to actually uh, live on it. Uh, Most of the the Western uh, settlement, the infilling of the land along the the railroads uh, that are put in after the Civil War uh, is a a cycle of... um, um, fraudulent, fundamentally fraudulent real estate, uh, speculative, speculative bubbles, and if complete with uh, broadsides and advertising, promising abundance in, in areas of the country where there's basically no real precipitation and where farming is vastly more difficult than it is in more settled parts of the country, uh, and drawing people out to find to their own uh, disappointment exactly how hard it is to live out there. But at that point, uh, the real money had already been made. And, you know, that continues now. Uh, the difference is, is that it's uh, the only game in town. Uh, and even it is only pitching salvation to a very, very small percentage of the population who can fantasize about living on the in Mars or whatever. Whereas uh, everyone else has to reckon with the sober reality that, that the, their, the frontier for them has completely been foreclosed. A great answer. And uh, the final question in this section, is there anything that you learned that was surprising or unexpected in the course of doing your research for Hell of Presidents? Surprising about it? Uh, I'm, I'm always amazed by just the depth of the violence of the labor movement, the late 19th century. Uh, it was by far the most turbulent and violent in the Western world. And the uh, unanimous uh, backing of capital at every point by um, the forces of uh, uh, government, 
government's alliance with capital at, uh, in all of those conflicts is, is so naked and, and uh, uh, bracing that it's uh, astounding that uh, any common Americans could survive those, that time with any remaining faith in these institutions. Uh, but of course, it's also the exact same period that America's imperial project begins. Uh, and there's, uh, that's not a coincidence. Uh, another thing that uh, uh, stands out in, in, in researching it is the uh, role of uh, the, the, the determining role of uh, specie and of, uh, of currency and of before 1913, the gold standard in determining the rate of America's economic activity uh, and re- denying to common Americans any real control over their own lives, or how they're go- how they're going to interact with this uh, hypothetical American abundance. Then that played a role in the ending of Reconstruction. Fundam- yeah, like uh, the the insistence on the gold standard and hard money policies more than any other single factor, uh, more even than the the racism uh, of America's white population is what dooms reconstruction as a project because they there was relatively little actual reconstruction going on there were there were titanic efforts by many of the reconstruction governments uh to to for the first time in the south create a civic infrastructure uh but at every point they were hamstrung by uh the boom and bust cycle uh that the gold standard uh the gold standard uh, made inevitable and which prevented any real stimulation, stimulating uh, uh, economic investment, public economic investment in after the collapses that would inevitably occur cyclically. Okay. Now moving on to your forthcoming hell on earth podcast coming out this January. Uh, so what inspired you and Chris Wade to make hell on earth? How does it connect to hell of presidents? Uh once again, this is it's Chris Wade's idea, uh, and the premise is we've talked in Hell of Hell Presidents about the birth of the American state, the, the colossus that ended up destroying the globe and determining the political, the economic political trajectory of uh, global politics in the 20th century and into the 21st. Uh, and but. Like that system does not have its uh, origins in the United States. It has its origins in the Europe that um, the people who the uh, white settlers of America were coming from uh, and the system that they uh, were bringing with them uh, to the United to uh, um, the Americas was forged uh, in the conflicts of the early modern era and specifically the crisis of the 17th century, which saw uh, continent wide conflagration. Uh, of revolts and revolutions, civil wars, and the Thirty Years' War in Germany. Uh, And out of that tumult uh, emerges this uh, systemized alliance of all of these uh, social and technological innovations that had been discrete phenomenon uh, distributed throughout different parts of uh, the continent, brought into control by the, the... hyperactive middle classes of countries like the Netherlands and then uh, England. Uh, And so we thought it would be good to kind of wind back the tape to examine exactly how that uh, force emerges uh, to end this, to connect that story to the uh, settlers who come to America and then with free real estate, synthesize out many of the contradictions that had that made capitalism in Europe uh, so cyclically violent uh, and made it capable of taking on that role once they had their violence had exhausted itself uh, in the 20th century. So picking up on on one of those discrete innovations that went into this uh, capitalist machine that was built at this time, uh, the printing press totally changed the way that uh, people that totally changed the access people had to books. Uh, from 1400 to 1450, there were between 20 and 30,000 manuscripts copied. Uh, but between 1450 and 1500, there were 20 million books printed. How does this change human social relationships and subjectivity? Uh, 
it changes what it means to be human fundamentally because uh, humanity is always, no matter what uh, uh, capitalism has sort of trained us to believe at this late point, uh, it is always a social construction. We are, we are a human individual does not have coherent meaning outside of a social context, but what that social context meant in medieval Europe was a very intimate thing. It was the people uh, that one interacted with uh, for the most part. Uh, it was those who you saw every day or, you know, every week. It was it was it was the, the people outside of that circle of uh, commerce were uh, in some sense uh, alien and, and uh, uh, could not be really considered part of the same uh, uh, conceptual block as as the more intimate relations. Uh, the creation of a literate public creates a new psychic concept of the self that encompasses people far outside of one's personal circle of relations. And that is insanely powerful. And it, uh, it ruptures a lot of the uh, settled modes of relation that had dominated European uh, social life throughout the feudal period. So do you see uh, social media playing a similar disruptive role today in changing how people relate to other people? Yeah, absolutely. Like we are, we are uh, part of the, one of the thesis of the show is that we are currently living through our own crisis of the 21st century, which is uh, a mirror in its, in, in many ways of the crisis of the 17th century, which was a situation where uh, the demographic explosion post uh, black death uh, had helped lead to this efflorescence of new technologies, uh, social, economic, uh, uh, cultural, uh, and but that new way of being these these new the new more urbanized, um, faster paced, more uh, marketized lifestyle that was being lived increasingly uh, in many precincts of Europe, specifically in Northern Europe, uh, was not being matched by changes in the political structure because those systems were still dominated by the old uh, feudal lords, uh, and there was no force capable of challenging that power uh, in any other class. Uh, and this led to a real deadlock that was pushed into, uh, pushed out of uh, balance and into uh, opened catastrophic conflict, apocalyptic conflict by uh, a climate change, by the little ice age, this period of uh, intense cooling that occurs in the early late 19th, early 17th century that knocks the pins out from underneath the agricultural economy that this rickety system depended on. And in the struggle to survive uh, this uh, emergent crisis, uh, elites are essentially forced to act against their own long-term interests, their long-term power uh, to, to, hold on to near-term power and that helps build this new system without anyone being aware that that's what they're doing uh that then comes out of uh that conflict uh and through the competition between those medium-sized states of western europe eventually becomes a global hegemonic structure which we are now living at our own end crisis of uh, we are now at the same point with capitalism that uh, Europe was uh, globally that capitalism was with feudalism in the early 17th century. And we are similarly having our, uh, our system where new modes are being built while uh, our political system is still dominated by uh, an unchallengeable elite. Uh, and we are also having that stalemate interrupted by uh, climate change brought on by the very system that emerged to respond to the last cycle of uh, of catastrophic climate change. And uh, so social media is doing the same thing to our minds, uh, making us no longer subjects in the same way we were, but still relating to each other through the same uh, uh, political uh, and economic uh, ways that we had before, uh, the same way that the printing press did. Uh, and in a, in a same way, it's having a wildly unpredictable effects and destabilizing effects 
that cannot really be controlled or uh, predicted. Uh, and the end result, I think, will be the same. Something is being built and something is going to emerge uh, after or uh, through, through this struggle uh, that is going to be its own radical uh, reformation uh, of subjectivity, of the economy, of human life uh, to deal with the new emergent reality that our uh, ec ecological uh, <clears throat> crisis point is going to insist upon. And one of the ways that the people in the 17th century dealt with the changing reality was the development of Protestantism and Calvinism. So could you talk a little bit about why Protestantism and really specifically Calvinism is more amenable to capitalism and a more marketized existence? Uh, Protestantism uh, can, uh, it can accommodate the reality of uh, market relations, that is, relations between strangers, uh, whereas medieval Christianity, the, the, the medieval Catholic Church, uh, was premised on a notion of universal, uh, uh, universal Christendom uh, and universal Christian uh, uh, citizenship broadly, uh, and the the reality of of a community of believer believing Christians who had their faith reinforced ritually uh, was that there were certain things that you could not do to your fellow Christians without violating fundamentally your uh, brotherhood with them. Uh, and one of those is, you know, something like charging money and interest. And one of the big reasons that, uh, uh, that uh, Jews were sort of uh, pariahs during this period is because while that, that, that sort of economic activity was necessary, even for feudalism to operate, uh, it could not be something that Christians could in good conscience carry out. And so the subject populations, uh, pariah populations were sort of charged with that, uh, that uh, antisocial element of the economy. Uh, but in, by the 17th, by the 16th century, when uh, Protestantism emerges, the, the option uh, to, to, uh, maintain those those relationships uh, is is being undermined by by the increased speed and uh, marketization of the economy by uh, the increased amount of just currency in circulation the amount the amount of money moving through uh, Europe thanks in large part to uh, the colonial enterprises of the Spanish Empire and uh, in that context the uh, there needed to be a new, religious understanding of the self that could treat another as a, as a stranger and also could find a, a virtue in labor for its own sake. Uh, and I think Luther emerges really as a figure who is trying to uh, save the feudal social structure from itself, uh, who believed that uh, a Bible reading uh, uh, evangelical population would through their understanding of their own salvation, through grace, treat each other uh, uh, as brothers without the need for the intercession of a corrupt hierarchical Catholic Church. Uh, but the the gears moving were much deeper than that. They could not be stopped, and so within a generation, you have the emergence of Calvinism, which is a uh, fully internalized conception of faith that no longer depends really on any sort of social validation. Yes, there's still a church. You still go uh, to, to sit with fellow believers in your congregation, but that congregation uh, should be separate in its uh, hierarchies and uh, powers from the state as such. Uh, and even the, the Eucharist, should you carry out the ritual of that, there is no more uh, real presence there. Like even for Luther, who questioned the sacraments of the Catholic Church, uh, he's broke it with the Calvinists over the question of the Eucharist. He refused to believe that there was no presence in the Eucharist. He believed, as 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 a fundamentally uh, medieval subject, that if you gather enough believers in a room, that God shows up, you know, in the form of the bread and the and the 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 wine. But for Calvin and the those who came later, uh, that is literally inconceivable that the, the, their uh, rationalized faith 
uh, insist that even when you get everybody in the congregation in the prayer room, that uh, it stays bread and it stays blood, that there, there is no uh, kindling into another world. It's a colder world that uh, Kelvin imagines. And it's not a world that Calvinism imposes. Calvinism is rather a way that people who are being forced into these new relationships are able to make sense of them. Very good answer. So how does Calvinism go on to transform into secular liberalism? So uh, it's the breach, the, the secular liberalism, uh, you can trace its origins in Calvinism in the Armenian disputes in the Dutch Republic during the 80 years war. Uh, so the Dutch embraced Calvinism very fervently, uh, but by the early 17th century, after the uh, first big, the big truce of uh, 1609 in the, in the 80 years war with uh, their Spanish overlords in their fight for independence, by which point the uh, United Provinces of uh, the Northern Netherlands have been able to create a de facto uh, independent Republic. Well, uh, still holding out hope that they could also liberate the southern Span southern Netherlands, which is now Belgium, which at the time was still uh, being dominated by Spain. Uh, and this figure, this this uh, theologian Arminius, he called himself, uh, emerges with a uh, theology that attempts to soften the harsh predestination of uh, Orthodox Calvinism and suggests that uh, there is some. Uh, requirement of works to uh to leaven you know the 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 life of of faith that that you can't as the calvinists imagined live a godless life basically uh, of pursuit of profit of pursuit of domination because these godly dutch are at this very moment literally building the modern slave trade uh in the atlantic well uh to to while fighting the Spanish, uh, there is also there's more overwhelming uh, obligations of of uh, of a Christian, and that conflict leads to Armenia uh, leads to the decapitation of the peace party during the the, the truce period, uh, and the domination by the war party, which uh, the House of Orange, the army. Uh, and the, uh, the the Orthodox Calvinists, but Arminianism ends up uh, becoming the uh, underlying faith of Methodism, uh, and then eventually uh, American uh, liberalism, uh, because it is a rational faith, and as time progresses, rational belief in God's existence becomes harder and harder to sustain. But the need for uh, the need to belong to some moral order and the need for uh, one's a person to embody some uh, moral virtue does not go away. Uh, and it is transformed into a political ethic of, uh, of virtue uh, propagation, which then becomes the basis for the American uh, new England liberal tradition. And by now the whole, uh, the, the, the democratic party broadly. Yeah, I think you can see that transformation in the social basis for a lot of the social movements in America. In the early stages of America, they, a lot of them were uh, religiously grounded. Like a lot of mm -hmm. the abolitionists were very religiously grounded. But by the time you get to the progressive era, uh, like evangelical Christianity had sort of been left to the rubes, essentially. Yes. Yeah, because that because once the, that that split comes to America and. Uh, it, it manifests between the people who actually are at the spear point of capitalism and, and uh, the, the brutal accumulated process of, Amer of building American capitalism, the slave owning class, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the Scotch Irish uh, uh, Cossacks basically who, who guard the, the frontier and uh, do the most direct conflict with uh, the native populations and the people who are uh, safe in merchant houses in New England, uh, uh, dealing with uh, the economy as, as an abstract, non-confrontational form, uh, uh, who are able to imagine themselves uh, separate from these uh, brutal realities of imposing uh, the market on North America, and so are able to 
uh, invest in rituals of uh, political uh, self-abnegation where they uh, prove their virtue and their worthiness of holding money uh, by their willingness to try to uh, reform uh, uh, America's political and economic institutions in a more uh, uh, more morally um, uh, a, a more it's not egalitarian just a, a more morally virtuous yeah virtue is the word uh, a, a, a public a, a politics of public virtue let's call it that uh, which is something that you know those who are doing the dirty work of building capitalism in America uh, are just are fundamentally alien from who they and that conflict really has defined uh, American politics ever since uh, for a while the work there was a self-conscious working class that uh, influenced that uh, conflict and that created sort of a third pole in American political identity. But we've been living for at least the last 40 years uh, in the aftermath of its uh, defeat. And so now politics is completely dominated by what is essentially a nervous breakdown within the mind, the middle-class American mind uh, over these questions. So turning back for our last question to the 30 years war, what role did the Rosicrucians play in the 30 years war? And how do you think occult practices figure into class rule generally? So there's uh, in the early 1600s, there are these pamphlets that emerge anonymously written uh, in Germany that allege the existence of this secret society of very learned, uh, wise men living in a city of light who use uh, essentially proto-scientific alchemical Kabbalistic practices to bring about the thing that mo- pretty much everyone in European is hoping for, which is uh, the return of Christ, but not in a uh, biblical religious sense, but in uh, a social sense that it will be brought about by the collective uh, knowledge of the people of Europe and that their that that fight it necessitates the overthrow of the tyrannical superstitious Catholic church, which is refusing to allow for a public sphere of uh, intellectual engagement to exist uh, that, you know, burns books, burns heretics, uh, and that uh, must be defeated. And that must have, a, and that must be defeated by a champion of reason and of godliness. And uh, many people in, in Germany uh, became convinced that the figure that they were referring to was Frederick V, the elector of Palatinate, who was the only Calvinist elector in the Holy Roman Empire, the uh, founder of the Protestant Union, which is a military alliance within the Holy Roman Empire that sought to advance Protestant uh, interests against a emperor that they increasingly saw as on the side of uh, the Catholic powers of the empire as opposed to a neutral arbiter. Uh, and uh, as a result, there was a fervor in the Palatine capital of Heidelberg uh, for this apocalyptic confrontation, uh, because there was a belief that, that that effort had these secret chiefs working behind the scenes uh, on its behalf, and that it was therefore sort of blessed. Uh, and that helped contribute to the decision, which uh, was looked upon at the time by many, including uh, Frederick's own father-in-law, the King of England and Scotland, James I, with horror. Uh, and But interestingly enough, even though there is likely there were no Rosicrucians to actually exist, and the, the uh, providence of the pamphlets has never really been established, there's a chance that they were uh, part of some broader intelligence operation to try to propagandize towards the uh, the Palestine uh, efforts that sparked the Thirty Years' War, uh, the decision to take the crown of Bohemia from the rebels who uh, refused to uh, give it to the Holy Roman Emperor. But in the aftermath of that, people started, who had read the Rosicrucian manifestos, uh, began to build their own uh, actual societies modeled on what they'd read with the hope that they would by making those efforts come into contact or be contacted by the real Rosicrucians. And it 
sort of manifested into reality the thing that was only being fantasized about in the pamphlets. And many of the people who ended up founding the uh, National, uh, the, the Royal Science Academy in England, that is a fulcrum for a lot of the technological uh, scientific progress that fuels uh, the uh, Industrial Revolution later, uh, were people who had been influenced by, by those Rosicrucian currents. Uh, for the broader question of uh, occult uh, s- societies and class uh, systems, I, the argument has been made, and I find it sympathetic that the origin of permanent class rule can be found in secret societies. Uh, that it is uh, that systems that are more f- that are fluid in their uh, po- in their authority in 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 the you know prehistorical moments when uh, relative uh, abundance of, of land and resources uh, makes it very difficult to impose centralized authority on people who, who don't want it, uh, those systems become concrete. Those, the systems of like temporary uh, surplus extraction for the purposes of, uh, of festivals and, uh, and uh, solidarity building can become permanent features of extraction uh, due to certain groups of people uh, with mastery over symbolic language and uh, systems of belief, uh, turning them towards a, a the specific narrow interests, material interests of people within that group uh, at the expense of the broader uh, population within the under the umbrella under the symbolic umbrella. That they operate in. Very interesting. So this last section, uh, these questions have been sourced from the r slash acid Marxism subreddit, which is a subreddit dedicated to uh, your vlogs. So a few people were interested in the role that psychedelics play in building a spiritual understanding of the world. In your view, what are the uses and limits of psychedelics? And you've often described them as a shortcut to feelings of oneness. What would be the long route? Well, the long route is uh, contemplation, is stillness, is mastery over the senses. But that is something that is very, very difficult to uh, embrace if you are, you know, enmeshed in human affairs. Uh, there's a reason that historically people who have sought that goal uh, are able to live off of the surplus of others. Uh, and really not have to worry themselves with e- they either systemically live off of the surplus of others in monasteries or they live as hermits away from uh, society and uh, uh, simplify their uh, their interactions so that the distractions and overwhelming uh, uh, emotional forces, the, the pull, the tug of, of, of life enmeshed with other humans. Um, are, are sort of paired away. Uh, so that makes it very difficult. And that's why people find themselves so uh, trapped within the, the, the matrix of relationships that they find themselves in, especially since so much of the things that we do every day are not things that we would choose to do, uh, that we, are feel, we feel broadly compelled to do them by uh, our uh, lack of self-sustenance, by the fact that we cannot live uh, off the land in any meaningful sense, that we are at the mercy of systems of uh, economic exchange uh, that we have to participate in. Uh, and so psychedelics have been something that can sort of cut through that and allow for the state of mind, the awareness that could come only in, uh, only otherwise through like very tenacious and, and deep uh, commitment to uh, to rigorous, like mystical practice, uh, they can they can essentially simulate the mental state, the 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 uh, the degree of s- the speed of the mind uh, of someone who has mastered their uh, senses through that process. But uh, that makes it a double edged sword because it does give uh, this awareness that can break you free very rapidly and 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 uh, miraculously from systems of thought that had completely dominated you and that you thought were absolutely untrans transcendable uh the the a, a door in like the the 
seeming coffin of life flies open. But for that reason, it's also dangerous because uh, sustaining that new belief is very difficult if your conditions are not changing. Uh, and so this, the temptation is to just continue hitting that button. But uh, because you are not willing those perceptible changes into uh, existence, controlling them is very, very difficult. Uh, and uh, at a certain point, you can remake reality around you, uh, but then you will come into contact with other people who have not had their reality remade the same way. And if you uh, cannot live with, if you cannot compromise with those people, uh, then you uh, break with reality in a way that uh, sort of inevitably uh, leads to some sort of violent conflict with the world around you. Yeah, good answer. So another question was uh, that the defeat of the Bernie campaign led to the various insights of being grill-pilled and a lot of the early movements in the vlogs, but that phase seems like it has uh, reaching its sort of life cycle. So in your eyes, what happens next? And another very common question that kind of ties into this, are you still planning on writing a book that synthesizes the ideas you've been exploring in the vlogs? Well, that, the, the, the question is difficult and it's kind of touch. They kind of connect to each other because like, yeah, the, the original idea was, okay, what, what do we, what do we do now? The Bernie failed pa pandemic happened. Like the, the, the iron gates are, are closed. How do we deal with that? And uh, the answer that I realized I needed to hear for myself and that I kind of articulated to others is like, I have to stop investing emotionally uh, in the political process the way that I had. Uh, I, because my level of control of it is so much less than my level of emotional investment in it that I am essentially uh, slaves to it. I am a slave to this process now because I have no impact. I have no influence on it. And yet it has total influence on my own state of mind. And so I had to set about a, a way to re uh, frame and redefine my relationship with the spectacular politics that I had been consumed by to that point. Uh, the problem though, for a next step is that uh, if you have emotionally detached from the spectacular politics if you do believe that you don't if you do accept your own lack of uh influence and power over them uh that means that your uh the question of what to do with your time and emotion is one that can only be answered individually uh because uh if the question is what can i control therefore what can i feel like I can influence what can give me a shape to my life and what can give me a sense of uh, direction and the security of uh, control, the, the, the sense of, of um, centeredness that comes from having a uh, goal that can be pursued. All of those things that can fill that hole by definition, cannot be uh, proscribed from a, a central perspective because the only frame of reference that someone in my position can have for others is the generalized spectacular level because that's the only thing that, that uh, we all, that's the only thing that we're all seeing at the same time. Uh, and and what, what that is, is that which by definition we can't control. By definition, we can't influence. Uh, so that becomes this uh, this contradiction at the heart of uh, my project that I'm just sort of having to live with. And the way that I personally am dealing with it is by uh, doing more historical stuff. So I don't honestly know if I'm ever going to write anything that synthesizes the political uh, uh, arguments that I've been making. Uh, but I do think that I will probably write a lot more about history. Uh, and I am probably going to take a lot of the stuff, the material from the hell of earth, the hell on earth uh, podcast and try to translate it into another format. 
uh, and also take it, you know, into uh, different uh, directions from there. All right. Um, so we are about at an hour, but if you have a few more minutes, I have a few kind of lightning round questions for you. Yeah, sure. Go for it. All right. So is your day going more Apollonian or Dionysian? Ha. Huh. You know, I try to I try to have both. I try to do I try to I try to mix it up like the girl in the taco commercial, you know, mm. hard shell, soft shell, Dionysian, Apollonian. I try to mix it up. I try to do a little. I definitely tend towards more of the Apollonian that even when I'm trying to have fun, it's kind of hard sometimes to let go. Uh, but I I'm trying to do both. Nice. <clears throat> so why do you start singing? Uh, why do you start the vlogs by doing a little song? Uh, it's because it takes a while for people to start funneling in. And I don't just want to stare at the screen like a dope, I guess. <laughs> I guess that's a good way to fill the air. Yeah. So what is your favorite place in Wisconsin? Hmm. Uh, I like Milwaukee a lot. I mean, it's got its problems. It's It's got a lot of problems, but I, I also lived there for a number of years and I, I think it's got a lot of, uh, of character and a lot of cool stuff about it. Uh, yeah, that's probably, probably my favorite place. It's in a similar vein for this question. You've lived on the East coast uh, West coast and third coast of the great lakes. How are they different and similar in your eyes? Well, the thing is in America, like everything's basically the same. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. the whole point is that the, the, uh, culture machine sort of, uh, smooths away everything, uh, that might be differential between them. Uh, I, I do think that the, 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 that Midwest nice is a thing, although, it is mostly very, deep, very barely restrained rage most of the time. Uh, there, whereas like the East Coast is a more uh, confrontational personal style that is, I think, probably in some ways healthier because it is an expression of feeling as opposed to a repression of feeling. Uh, and then uh, California really does uh, live up to its reputation as a place where sort of uh, you don't have that conflict because nobody's really feeling anything, you know, just sort of a comfortable numbness nice so what is your favorite nonfiction, or not your favorite but what is one of your favorite nonfiction books that you would uh, recommend to someone to read uh one book that i read a while ago uh that uh really gave me a lot of uh inspiration to sort of think in sort of really big historical terms and to like try to make broad connections uh, in a way that like academic history really, really uh, frowns on uh, is the cousins wars by, uh, by Kevin Phillips, which is this magisterial work that uh, makes a broad argument that the Amer English civil war, the American revolutionary war and the American civil war is, is, is a extension of, of one long conflict between the landed uh, elites uh, and uh, merchant elites uh, in the Atlantic uh, Anglosphere. And uh, it's, it's got a lot of really cool details uh, and fascinating anecdotes and also really interesting uh, large scale uh, history uh, telling. Oh, another one. Uh, uh, Big Trouble by J. Anthony Lucas, which is about the trial of Big Bill Haywood for the uh, assassination of the former governor of I Idaho. Uh, and that book is really great uh, and has, an, has its own uh, idiosyncratic approach to history in that it sort of uh, takes the trial and uses it as this uh, opportunity to take these wild digressions on all sorts of topics. So when when describing the people coming to Boise for the trial and staying at the uh, local hotel, he gives a, a history of uh, of uh, like railroad hotels in the West and, and the, these uh, huge uh, sort of sm uh, mini cities that, that are built up very quickly uh, in these boom towns in the West that have like in these ridiculous amenities. I still rem remember reading that. He, he goes into a description of the, uh, the detective literature of the period in relation to the Pinkertons who uh, abducted uh, Big Bill Haywood and his 
co-defendants uh, and cross illegally cross state lines with them. So uh, it, it definitely uh, is a book that helped influence my my uh, approach to history in that it uh, reminds you of just anywhere you look at any any seemingly clear seemingly uh, uh, seemingly straightforward historical moment there's just these uh, fascinating nodes within them that you can choose to uh, dial in on at your at, if you at, at, with what you're interested in so similar question do you have any uh, fiction books that uh, loom large for you uh, the collected works of George Saunders. He's probably my favorite uh, living American author. Uh, mostly short stories. One novel called Lincoln and the Bardo. They're all they're all great. Uh, he's, he's got a new one out that's got maybe his best work in it. He's got a short story there called Liberation Day that I think synthesizes a lot of things he'd done in previous things, previous works, uh, and and creates a whole a kind of a new thing. Even though he does work in a few. Uh, recognizable modes. Uh, it's fascinating if you read all of his stuff, just seeing him make variations on similar themes and still find new insights and, and beautiful uh, juxtapositions uh, and uh, poetry in all of them. Thank you. And uh, what movies do you think have had the biggest impact on you and have gone the most into your brain space? Uh, well, I mean, I was a child of I was a child of the nineties. Uh, so I had my brain just absolutely pulverized by Quentin Tarantino when he showed up <laughs> on the scene. Uh, so yeah, all, uh, the reservoir, probably for good and definitely for ill as well. But you know, I I, I didn't choose it. I can't do anything about it. Uh, so definitely uh, Tarantino. Also, Doctor Strangelove is a movie that I saw as a teenager and had uh, really really got under my skin. Yeah, great movie. And uh, so the last question I have is: Do you have any games on your phone? <laughs> not anymore for a while i was downloading a bunch of those i was cycling through those ones you see on like instagram ads where it's like you're running in a on a on a path and you're like trying to get try to get but, bigger or more guys. yeah yeah but yeah, they're yeah. never they're never actually what they look like in the ads and they're then i always bad. i get bored pretty quickly and i delete them and i'm now i'm now like no get on the only game i have on my phone right now is twitter yeah yep <laughs> All right. So that is all I have. Thank you for joining us today. Yes. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Have a good rest of your day.